Hi, Jeff here. Um, Before we get started with today's show, I just wanted to let you know that this podcast, Coffee with Jeff, is coming to an end. There will only be two more shows after this. For those of you who enjoy listening to it, I'm sorry, but it is time to, well, move on. You know, this show may not have a lot of listeners, but it had some great loyal listeners. I never received one negative comment. All the emails, the messages, they were all positive, and that I, 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 I appreciate. So I want to thank everybody who listened to the show, and I want to let you know that your support meant more to me than you could possibly know. Anyway, starting in January of next year, I'll be doing a new podcast, something similar to this, but it's going to focus more on film and filmmakers. Now, I know what you're saying. Jeff, there's like a million movie podcasts out there. Yes, but most of them aren't that good, and most people who do these shows don't do any research. So I'm hoping mine will be a little different, in sort of the same vein as what I've been doing on Coffee with Jeff. There'll be more details to follow. Anyway, let's get on with the show. These transmissions indicate some intelligent life. Let us move in for a closer look. Greetings. Good Sunday morning to you. Welcome to the Coffee with Jeff podcast, the podcast in which I find a subject I would like to know more about and force that knowledge on to you, the podcast subscriber. This is episode 223. There once was a young woman who was returning from work at 3 a.m. in New York City when a total stranger ran up and stabbed her with a knife. The year was 1964 and her death was one out of 636 murders in the Big Apple that year. But her story is still being talked about more than 60 years later. And that was because of a New York Times article that may have bent the truth a little. And that story shocked the world. Today I have the shocking and sad story of Kitty Genovese. Recently in the news, there was a story about a woman who was raped on a train while bystanders just stood around and used their cell phones to take pictures and videos. I've also read that this story might have been misreported and may not be true. I hope that's the case, but it reminded me of a story from 1964. It was the murder of Kitty Genovese, a 28-year-old bartender who was stabbed outside the apartment building that she lived in. It was March 13, 1964, about 3 a.m. Sophie Farrar and her husband, with a child sleeping in another room, heard a horrible, blood-curdling scream coming from the street below. They lived in a second-story apartment in Kew Gardens in Queens. The scream was loud enough to wake everybody in the building, maybe 30 or 40 people. But from his view, he didn't see anything, so the couple returned to bed. About 20 minutes later, somebody yelled for Sophie's help. She turned to her husband and said, Kitty's in the hallway, bleeding. Kitty lived in the same apartments. In fact, Kitty and Sophie's apartments were close enough that they could talk to each other through their windows. The two were quite good friends and often had coffee together and talk about those things that women in New York would talk about in the 1960s. Sophie grabbed her jacket and headed out the door. 
Her husband yelled as he was getting his clothes on, wait, wait for me. She got to the dark, cold street, and inside a doorway at the bottom of a flight of stairs, the 28-year-old Kitty lay on the other side, her face towards the door. Sophie had to force open the door because Kitty lay against it. Getting down on the blood-filled floor, she held Kitty in her arms. At first, Kitty tried to fight her off, as if she was still battling the person who had done this to her. Sophie was able to calm her. She could feel the stab wounds in her back. By this point, Kitty couldn't speak, only making gargling noises when she tried. Sophie stayed with the young girl, holding her tight till the ambulance came. Although she was alive when the medics arrived, it was too late. Kitty died on her way to the hospital. The following morning, a short four-paragraph article ran in the New York Times with the headline, Queen's Women Stabbed to Death in Front of Home. And this might have been the end to the story of Kitty's pointless death. But two weeks later, another story by Martin Gainsbourg appeared in the Times with the headline, 37 Who Saw Murder Didn't Call Police. If this had been on the internet today, it would have been classified as clickbait. Anyway, he wrote... For more than a half an hour, 38 respectable law-abiding citizens in Queens watched a killer stalk and stab a woman. Twice the sounds of their voices and the sudden glow of bedroom lights interrupted him and frightened him off. Each time he returned, sought her out, and stabbed her again. Not one person called police during the assault. One witness called after the woman was dead. He also reported that the man who finally called police sheepishly said... I didn't want to get involved. He goes on to say, A housewife, knowingly if quite casual, said, We thought it was a lover's quarrel. A husband and wife said, Frankly, we were afraid. They seemed aware of the fact that the events might have been different. A distraught woman wiping her hands on her apron said, I didn't want to get my husband involved. And the article led readers to believe that Kitty Genovese died at the bottom of those stairs without one soul helping or comforting her. There was no mention of Sophie Farrar. It was one of 336 murders that year in New York City, but the only one that's remembered more than 60 years later. It was because of Martin Gainsbourg's story that it became famous. Not for the tragic loss of life to a pretty young woman, but for the cold, cruel, selfish, and indifferent attitude of those who failed to help. It was a morality tale to many, and I'm sure that many who read this couldn't help but be disgusted. I'm sure the first thing that came out of many a person's mouth was, What's wrong with people today? Kitty's name still comes up when there's a story about people failing to respond to another in need of help. It has become known as the Genovese Syndrome, or more commonly, the bystander effect. There have been papers by leading universities written on the subject, books and documentaries, all using the Kitty Genovese murder as an example. It was the basis for stories in such shows as Perry Mason and Law and Order. According to Psychology Today, the bystander effect occurs when the presence of others discourages an individual from intervening in an emergency situation against a bully or during an assault or other crime. The greater number of bystanders, the less likely it is for any one of them to provide any help to the person in distress. People are more likely to act in a crisis when there are few or no other witnesses present. 
and for years the case of Kitty Genovese was the textbook example of this effect. Many still repeat the story today. I recently heard it on another podcast, as they use this as an example of just how awful human beings can be. But is it true? Did over three dozen people really do nothing as a woman cried in pain dying in the street? Even Kitty's family, siblings and parents, never knew that Sophie Farrar had been with her when she died. What really happened on March 13, 1964? Kitty was born Catherine Susan Genovese on July 7, 1935. She was the oldest of five children. In school, she was a good student and was voted class cut-up in her senior year at Prospect Heights High. All those that knew her said she was bright and intelligent. In 1953, the Genovese family moved from New York to Connecticut after Kitty's mother had witnessed a murder on the streets of Brooklyn. New York, her mother thought, was just not a safe place to live. But Kitty loved the Big Apple, and now that she had graduated high school, decided to stay in New York. She had a job as a secretary at an insurance company and also worked at Eve's 11th Hour Bar, a place in the Hollis neighborhood of Queens. She started out as a bartender and eventually became the manager, with dreams of one day opening her own Italian restaurant. She had been doing this for 10 years, and during that time she had been married and divorced. She was even arrested once. She had been passing on bets at the bar to illegal bookies when the police moved in. One of the most famous pictures of Kitty was from her mugshot. But she loved her job at Eve's 11th hour, and all the regulars loved her as well. She was the type not to take much crap and wasn't afraid to put people in their place. At the time of the crime, she lived in a second-floor apartment in Kew's Gardens in Queens with her girlfriend, Mary Ann Ziloko. Yes, Kitty was a lesbian, and, and that might have been why her first marriage ended, that she came to terms with her own sexuality. Anyway, the area the two lived in was considered peaceful and safe by most neighbors. But it was the type of neighborhood where people pretty much kept to themselves. It was on a cold night when she left work, excited about celebrating her one-year anniversary with her love, Mary Ann. She parked her car at a rail station that was next to her apartments and began walking towards the door. She had no idea that a 28-year-old man named Winston Mosley was stalking the neighborhood, looking for his next victim. Mosley was a married man with two sons and five German shepherds who worked for a business machine company punching data cards. He had snuck out of his home in Queens at around 1 a.m. while his wife slept. He took with him a serrated hunting knife. At about 3 a.m., he drove around and was about to give up for the night when he saw Kitty get into her car as she left work. He quickly made a U-turn and followed her home. He watched her get out of her car and head towards the apartment. At 3 a.m., all the local businesses were closed and most people in the apartments were sleeping. As Kitty walked, she heard footsteps behind her and started to run. He chased. When Winston caught up, he thrust his knife towards the young lady and she screamed as loud as she could, Oh God, I've been stabbed. Robert Moser, a neighbor, saw what was going on from his upper apartment and yelled from the window, Leave that girl alone! Winston looked up and then ran away. Bleeding and horrified, Kitty used this time to make way to the apartment's entrance 
but as she got through the doorway, she collapsed at the bottom of the stairs. And unfortunately, no one called police. Or if they did, the police didn't respond. Winston had run back to his car, but after a moment, he realized that the police weren't coming, so he returned to finish the job. As Kitty lay on the pavement bleeding, he brutally raped her, or some reports say attempted to rape her, and then he used the knife again. Before he left, he took the $49 Kitty had in her wallet. It was then that the friend and neighbor, Sophie Farrar, came to her. Kitty was barely breathing at the time. At 4 a.m., almost 30 minutes after the second attack, another neighbor, Carl Ross, finally called the police. Catherine Susan Kitty Genovese died while on her way to Queens General Hospital. Her girlfriend, Marianne, identified her body. She had at least 13 stab wounds and numerous defense wounds in her hands, indicating that Kitty had fought hard to defend off her attacker. And many believe she would have lived if help had arrived before the second attack. Winston Mosley was caught and confessed to the murder of Kitty as well as to one other woman a few days earlier. And as sad as this story is, what made it well known as it is today was that New York Times story. Later that same year, A.M. Rosenthal, who would later become one of the most famous and controversial editors of the New York Times, wrote a book called 38 Witnesses, the Kitty Genovese Case, based on Martin Gainsbourg's article. That increased the legend even more. In 2016, over 50 years later, Robert D. McFadden of the New York Times looked into the story. He pointed out that, yes, there were those that failed to get involved, but the portrayal of 38 witnesses as being fully aware and unresponsive was erroneous. He wrote, The article grossly exaggerated the number of witnesses and what they had perceived. None saw the attack in its entirety, only if you had glimpsed parts of it or recognized the cries for help. Many thought they had heard lovers or drunks quarreling. There were two attacks, not three, and afterwards two people called the police. A 70-year-old woman ventured out and cradled the dying victim in her arms until they arrived. Miss Genovese died on her way to the hospital. Remember, the article originally said she had died on the street by herself. In 2015, a documentary called The Witness was released. Directed by James D. Solomon, it is the story about William Genovese, who is Kitty's brother. For his whole life, he had avoided the subject of a sister's death. It was just too painful for him to think about. But 50 years later, he decided to find out the truth. At one point, he interviews journalist Gabe Pressman. Gabe has the notes of Daniel Meeman, a TV and news radio reporter, who talked to Martin Gainsbourg about the inaccuracies in his story. He asked, why didn't you include in your story the fact that many witnesses did not believe a murder was taking place? Allegedly, Martin responded by saying it would have ruined the story. Now, I want to make this clear. Yes, that article seems to be factually wrong. The number 38 was highly exaggerated. But yes, there were a few, apparently, who did know something was going on, something awful, and did fail to react. But now in the movie, Kitty's brother attempts to find all those people who were the so-called witnesses, but unfortunately, most are no longer living. 
As for Winston Mosley, he was sentenced to death for her murder. When the jury foreman read the sentence, Mosley showed no emotion, while some spectators applauded and cheered. Judge J. Irwin Shapiro said, I don't believe in capital punishment, but when I see a monster like this, I wouldn't hesitate to pull the switch myself. His sentence was changed to life in prison after an appeal. In 1968, Mosley escaped from prison. He made it to a home owned by Mr. and Mrs. Matthew Kalega. He held the couple for hostage, binding and gagging Matthew and raping Mrs. Kalega before taking their car and fleeing. He was eventually caught and given two additional 15-year sentences to run concurrently with his life sentence. He was denied parole 18 times before dying in prison on March 28, 2016. From what I've read, he never showed much remorse for the killings. So that story was a bit of a downer, don't you think? How about another story? We have time. How about a story of the attempted kidnapping of a princess? It all began around 8 p.m. on March 20, 1974. A maroon Rolls-Royce limousine marked with a royal insignia headed towards Buckingham Palace on a road called the Mall, a stretch of road not very well lit. Inside the back of the luxury automobile was 23-year-old Princess Anne and her husband of four months, Mark Phillips. Sitting across from the couple was Anne's lady-in-waiting, Rowena Brassey. Behind the wheel was chauffeur Alex Chandler, and sitting next to him, Inspector Mark Wallace Beaton. Beaton was a member of Scotland Yard's Special Operations Branch, charged with royalty protection. They were coming from a charity film screening in Pall Mall and were only a couple of hundred feet from Buckingham Palace when a white Ford Escort passed their car and forced the chauffeur to pull over. A bearded man with light red hair exited the car. The 31-year-old Inspector Beaton at first thought that he was a disgruntled driver and stepped out to find out what was wrong. Within seconds, the inspector realized the man was holding two guns. Beaton didn't quite know what to do. There is very little, if any, training, Inspector Beaton said in an interview in 2014 on the BBC. I mean, there's a little on firearms, but that's about it. This was back in the 70s. Nothing ever happened, so the furthest thing from my mind was that somebody was going to do us harm. Well, Beaton quickly found out somebody was there to do them harm as shots were fired. Beaton got off one shot before being hit. Now, being that this was back in the 70s, it was long before cell phones. So any type of communication device in a car would have required a bunch of antennas and such. And this being a royal limousine, it was thought that things like that just wouldn't be proper. So the princess and the others were on their own, no chance of calling for help. The man with the two guns was 26-year-old Ian Ball. And as he walked around to the car door, Beaton, who was shot in the shoulder, attempted to shoot the assailant. But he found because of his injury, using one hand wasn't possible, so he tried to hold the gun with two hands. After one shot missed, the gun jammed and he wasn't able to get off another shot. Ian Ball walked to the rear door on the driver's side where Captain Phillips sat. He looked in and yelled, Open or I'll shoot! Anne and Philip attempted to keep the door shut. Meanwhile, at Princess Anne's insistence, her lady-in-waiting snuck out the opposite door. 
With the passenger door open, the wounded beaten snuck back in. He climbed over the couple and got himself between them and the man holding the guns. Ball shot into the car, hitting Beaton's hand. A third shot hit Ball in the chest, and he fell to the ground as the door opened. The chauffeur, Alexander Chandler, got into the act and stepped out to confront the gunman, only to get shot himself. Chandler, bullet in the chest, climbed back into the front seat. Meanwhile, the couple had closed the door once again, but Ball pulled it open and grabbed the princess's arm and began to pull. Phillips grabbed her other wrist. Please come out, said Ball to Anne. You've got to come. The princess responded by saying, not bloody likely. And for a moment, the two had a very polite, calm, but irritating conversation, according to Anne. I kept saying I didn't want to get out of the car, and I was not going to get out of the car, she told police. She told him that he should just drop the guns and walk away. They can forget the whole thing ever happened. The first man on the scene was a 22-year-old police constable, Michael Hills. Hills approached, thinking that it was a car accident. Not knowing Ball was armed, he touched him on the shoulder. Ball turned and shot, and the constable was hit in the stomach. Before collapsing, Hills managed enough strength to radio his police station. But the struggle continued, Ball pulling on the princess's arm and Phillips trying to hold her back. It was when Anne's dress ripped and split down the back that she began to get mad. That was his most dangerous moment, she said. I lost my rag at that stage. The wounded police constable managed to climb back into the car and tried to help but was shot again. Somehow Anne ended up flat on her back on the floor and Phillips fell on top of her. A former boxer named Ron Russell had walked up and saw the shooting of the constable. As Ball turned back towards the princess, Russell punched him in the back of the head. The princess was able to reach behind her head and open the door and then did a sort of backward somersault to get out of the car. Seeing Anne out of the car on the other side, Ball ran around the front of the car to get to her, so she climbed back in and locked the door. By then, more police began to show up, so Ball took off running and the police chased him down, and he was eventually arrested. It turned out that Ian Ball was a 26-year-old who suffered from mental illness. He spent about three years planning the kidnapping. Ball thought the princess would be an easy target. He said, I thought about it for years. She would have been the easiest. I've seen her riding with her husband. Oddly, he learned of the princess's plans for that night by simply telephoning the Buckingham Palace press office. Did he feel any guilt over the shooting of Benton and the other two? Well, he said, They were getting in my way, so I had to shoot them. Well, the police, that's their job. They expect to be shot. I took a chance of getting shot, so why shouldn't they? In his rented car, they found two pairs of handcuffs, Valium tranquilizers, and a ransom letter addressed to the Queen. He had typed a rambling note that criticized the royal family and demanded two million pounds ransom to be delivered in five pound sterling notes. Ball asked that the queen have the money stored in 20 unlocked suitcases and be put on a plane destined for Switzerland. Queen Elizabeth II herself, wrote Ball, needed to appear on the plane to confirm the authenticity of her signature on the needed paperwork. As of 2019, he was still detained under the Mental Health Act at Broadmoor Hospital. Fortunately, all three men who were shot recovered from their injuries. Benton was awarded the George Cross by the Queen. Hill and Russell were awarded the George Medal. 
and Chandler, McDonald, and Edmonds were awarded the Queen's Gallantry Medal. Apparently, this event inspired parts of Tom Clancy's novel, Patriot Games. A little bit before I go, you know, as I wrote the Kitty Genevieve's story, every now and again I stopped and just stared at her picture for a moment and found myself overcome with a wave of sadness. It was really odd. And anyway, the 2015 documentary The Witness can be found on a few streaming services. I watched it on the IMDb streaming channel for free, but with commercials. And according to Wikipedia, as of 2016, there were at least 37 fictionalized accounts on film of the night Genevieve was murdered. As far as the attempted kidnapping of Princess Anne, the order of events are in question. Even in a BBC interview with the princess, she admits that she's not sure what happened when, which is understandable. I'm sure with people coming and going, there was a lot of confusion, and looking back, it's hard to remember all the details in the right order. I'm sure if you look up other accounts, it'll, it'll vary, but you know. Anyway, how about the ending credits? You've been listening to Coffee with Jeff, a Zeus Brothers Entertainment podcast. I thank you for listening. If you want to say hi to me or tell me how wrong my stories are or just add information to the stories I tell, you can email me at coffeewithjeff at gmail.com. You can follow me on Twitter. My name on Twitter is Coffee with Jeff, all one word. And I have a Coffee with Jeff Facebook page. I usually tell you that you can suggest stories at any of these places, but I guess at this point it really doesn't matter. Links to all the sources that I use to write today's episode are available at Transistor.fm's Coffee with Jeff page for this episode. You can find a link to this on the Coffee with Jeff website. I want to thank my wife of 37 years for being my wife of 37 years, David Metzger for designing the Coffee with Jeff logo, Kelly Rickert for writing and performing the Coffee with Jeff theme, and to all of you who listen to the show every week, thank you so much. And a special shout out to all those that repost this on social media. You have a special place in my heart. Take care, remain healthy, and I'll be back in two weeks. Bye. Coffee with Jeff. Coffee, coffee with Jeff. Coffee with Jeff.
to have some coffee with you. Coffee with just coffee. On coffee with just coffee with just coffee. coffee.